I want to start out with a question. The question is this. What is a Christian? Now, it seems simple. Some of you know that while well, a Christian, by purest definition, is a person who follows the teachings of Christ. But I want you to really, to the gut, think about this question and think about it in the context of how we live life. If you see 83% of Americans in an ABC News poll done recently, 83% of Americans, when asked, what is your religious affiliation? 83% of Americans use this word, Christian. I am a Christian. But as I look at across America and I look at my life, I look at this church, I look across Lancaster County, our lives are all so vastly unique and different. And I begin to wonder, what does this word really mean to most of us? Maybe another question that would work along with this is, where am I going to go when I die? Can I be certain of where I will be when I die? And does how I live impact whether I get there? I'll never forget, for me, at the age of five, coming home with my parents. It was either a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, and, but there was a church service. And I remember the preacher that night scared the living hell out of me, to put it very bluntly, because he talked about hell. And all I knew was driving home, I did not want to go there. And I remember thinking, boy, this place seems real, it seems nasty, and I want nothing to do with it. So I remember asking my dad in the car, where he's in the front seat driving, I'm in the back seat, and I say, Dad, how do I avoid this place? So we get home as he put me to bed. We actually come into his room. And I remember it so vividly. It's this bed. It was a queen-size bed laid out with this cream-colored um, blanket, um, an old run-down home. And uh, it, we, I kind of gather. He has these closets across the backside where, the, where one side of the bed. And we kneel there together. And he begins to explain to me who Jesus is. And he begins to tell me that Jesus, he says, Adam, we're all sinners and you need to admit that you're a sinner. Jesus died for that sin. You embrace Jesus and the fact that he is God and that is how you avoid this place called hell. So I said, that's a no brainer for a five-year-old. I'm thinking that's a cool thing to do. I can handle that. I know I blow it. I know I've got junk in my life. I can handle this prayer. So I prayed the prayer to get out of hell, punch my ticket to heaven. I'm now a Christian. Born again is the word that you may hear thrown around. But the thing that's interesting is I walk through life, and you may relate to this, I'd go to camp meetings. And you'd be at these camp meetings. And all of a sudden this preacher comes up and he preaches this powerful, dynamic message, and the campfire's burning behind him, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, maybe I should pray again. So I pray again. Or the times as I start approaching my ele- later elementary years and into junior high, and I remember the times I'd lay in bed at night and I'd pray the prayer again. Because I always had this internal, man, I still do bad stuff. I still continue to blow it. I still continue to, and, and can it really be that easy of just this simple little prayer? And so I bet you I prayed that prayer <laughs> at least 200 times until I hit high school. And I think about it. Can we be certain of what it is to be a Christian and what it is? And, and can I be rock solid sure that I'm going to be in heaven one day? Not only 83% of Americans say they're Christians, 92% of them believe in God, according to Fox News. A Gallup poll says 93% of Americans believe in heaven. But if you listen to some of these other stats, it's very interesting to me. 59% of Americans believe that Muslims and Christians worship the same deity. 59% of Americans believe that Muslims and Christians worship the same deity. 
So the God that they call Allah and the God that I call God, Jesus Christ, they say, hey, both roads are going to get you there. She continues some of these stats. 34, 34% of born-again Christians believe good works can earn you a place in heaven. 54% of the average population in America believe that how I live is going to determine whether I'm this and whether I'm going to be in heaven. But catch this one. This is one that's interesting to me. So you've got this large majority of us that say we're Christians, but yet 70% of Christian men, this is done, this is Christianity Today did this survey, 70% of Christian men between the ages of 18 and 34 view pornography at least one time a month. And men aren't the only ones. 20% of Christian women view pornography at least one time a month. People who say, I'm a Christian, yet struggle with pornography on a monthly basis. This one caught me off guard even more. Barna, some of you know George Barna, the research group. Divorce rates among conservative Christians exceeds significantly higher than that of any other faith group. And it's significantly higher than those who profess to be atheist or agnostic. So I say, now wait a minute. What does this word really mean? I hear people say I'm a Christian, but yet divorce rate exceeds those who say God doesn't even exist. It's interesting. And I think of all of our lives. I think of how many of us this week told a lie or gossiped. How many of this week stole time from an employer? Maybe got drunk, hollered at the kids. We got stuff in our life and we say, but I'm this. What does this really mean to me and how I live my life? How many of us, I think about this one, struggled with some area of sin? The thing, it's, the thing that humbles me and sobers me, most of us, the area that we struggle with is the same thing we've struggled with for most of our lives. For me, it's anger. I've always been angry. I've always struggled with it. Lust, I've always struggled with it. I talk to other people who, the, you look at this thing that they struggle with, it's often, I think, now wait a minute, what does this mean? The Bible says I become a new creature when I'm a Christian. The old has gone, the new has come, but yet I continue to struggle with things that I've struggled with since I've been a teenager. Why? So we stand back and we call all of this Christian. And so really the question becomes, what is Christian? The book of 1 John, if you want to turn with me there, we're going to work through this book all summer long and even actually a little bit into the fall. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, you want to turn... It's in the very back of your Bible. You're going to see the big book of Revelation written by the same author who wrote 1 John. You're going to continue forward towards your Bible. You're going to see the book of Jude, 3 John, 2 John, and then you're going to hit 1 John. I want you to look at this verse up on the screen. It's 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. This is kind of, the, I cut out some words in so you can kind of see. John is writing, he says in chapter 5, here's the heart and soul of what we're going to study this summer. I write, so he's saying, this is why I put what I put in writing, so that you may know that you have what? Eternal life. He says, I'm going to write this book, and I'm going to put it in, I'm going to put it in ink, and I'm going to send it around all the churches, because I know that it's possible for you to know that you have eternal life. And I want you to have that assurance. 
The word assurance flows all through the book of 1 John. 1 John repeatedly, page after page, as you flip through, verse after verse, is all about testing to say, hey, this is what eternal life is. This is what it means to be a Christian. And this is how you can know for sure that you have that thing called eternal life and you'll spend eternity with your heavenly father in heaven. Now, some real quick distinctives on the book. I just want to mention these. I don't want to spend a lot of time on them because I don't want to get caught in the depths of this, but I think it's still important to understand some of this before we dive headlong into the book. The book is written by the disciple of Jesus, John. It is the disciple that Jesus loved more than any other disciples. It's a disciple that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looks down and he sees his mother there and he looks over and sees John and he says, John, this is now your mother. Mother, this is now your son. And he asked John to take care of his mother. This is a disciple that walked with Jesus intimately, closer than any of the other disciples did. This is a disciple that understood the heart of Jesus Christ better than, than all 12 of the disciples. That's the writer, the same writer who wrote the Gospel of John, same writer who wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote the book of 1 John between the two. John is written with a pastor's heart. You're going to see it. He calls them dear children, little children. He has this bleeding heart for people. Yet at the same time, it is one of the most black and white and blunt books in the New Testament. It's written with a very simple Greek. Most, if, you're, if you go to Bible school to study Greek, this is the book that you will probably work through because it's the easiest and simplest Greek in the Bible. But it is incredibly black and white. There is zero room for gray in this book. I mean, you're going to see it right away this morning. It's going to pop out, but all throughout the book, it's got a lot of contrast. He talks about light and darkness. He talks about love and hate. It's all this. It's very black and white, very contrast oriented. So keep that in mind as you read it. The other thing too, one of the key things to understand is he's writing to take on false religion. There's a lot of people that walk around under the name. I believe in God. I'm a Christian. And he's writing to say this is what genuine Christianity is. He's especially dealing with a group in the first century church called the Gnostics or Gnosticism. Gnostics held this view that knowledge and belief is far higher than virtue. So believe right, you got it down, so who's not so concerned about how you live. So get it down up here. They also believed something that, I, and it's funny how we see these same beliefs still floating around today. They also believed that the material world is evil and bad. There's a spiritual world and a material world, and the material world is evil and bad. Now, here's where this gets people in trouble. The Gnostics then believe because the material world is evil and bad, Jesus Christ could not be the Son of God because deity cannot merge with an evil material world. So they taught that Jesus Christ was not God. They taught that you could get to, he was a good person, but he was not fully deity, and they taught that you could get to God without Jesus. Very, so John is writing with those, that group square in his crosshairs as he writes this book. You're going to see that come out all throughout the book. But the biggest thing, keep in mind this verse. As, you, as we study through this summer, this book is given so that we can know that we have eternal life. So all throughout the book, and we're going to talk about it this morning, he gives a test right away this morning of, hey, if you're a Christian, here's what's going to be true of you. And if it's not true of you, Go back and evaluate the root and the source. Do you really know Jesus? It's going to be the theme of this whole book. With that said, look with me at chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 reads this. That which was from the beginning, 
which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Very similar language to John chapter 1. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we... We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. Biggest thing to remember from these verses, John and the disciples that he talked about were eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. They walked with him. They talked with him. They heard him. They smelled him. They laughed with him. They interacted hands on with Jesus day in and day out. Now, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a huge TV fan, but when I do watch TV, you can always find a good Law & Order episode on. Hands down. In fact, last night I sat down just for 15 minutes before heading to bed just to kind of unwind from my day. USA had a Law & Order marathon on, on apparently all day. I love Law & Order. Now, I like Law & Order because it's the humanity of it I love is they bring out, you can study people, they, they bring the law into it. I'm fascinated with laws and how they work, and they always challenge me to process thought. But one of the things that I've learned, I'm not a genius when it comes to law, but the one thing that I've learned, if you don't have an eyewitness, you don't have a case. Eyewitnesses are crucial in, this, in the court of law. You don't have an eyewitness that you've got the card stacked against you whether you're going to win that case. An eyewitness, and that's what John is saying here. John is saying, I and the apostles that I've walked with, we were with Jesus. The things that you hear other people say, they didn't walk and live with Jesus. I lived with him. We sailed together. We camped together. We fed people together. We healed people together. Jesus touched me. I touched him. We laughed together. I am an eyewitness to Jesus Christ, his life. And what I'm about to share is legitimate, and it can be taken as gospel truth because I was a witness of who Jesus was. Now, verse 3. He's going to kind of slip now into the real purpose now. He's going to come into this theme, and it's going to carry through the whole book. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have, look at this word, fellowship with us. The word is fellowship. Powerful word. So he says, I want you to have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So what he really wants is he wants you to have fellowship. Now, the word fellowship is an interesting word. It's a word that we throw around in in Christian circles. You may see food, fellowship, and fun written in a bulletin somewhere. What is fellowship? Fellowship in its simplest form in the Greek language simply means to have in common with. So what he is writing is he says, I want you to have something in common with me. It's kind of like I'm a Penn State fan. If I ask you to come over to watch a game with me because you're a Penn State fan, we have something in common. We gather together because of common interest. So fellowship in its purest and simplest form is we gather here together to fellowship. What are we gathering and fellowshipping around? It's Jesus Christ. Fellowship is to have something in common. Now, so he talks about this fellowship that they had, and he says, we want you to have fellowship with us. A pastor's heart. This is where you see his pastor's heart come out. He loves his people. And he wants them, he wants to be connected with them. He wants to walk with them. He wants them to get it. Talk to any pastor. They love seeing when a, per, when a light bulb goes on and there's connection and there's, there's that movement. Now, the second thing then he goes on, he says, and, have, and our fellowship is with the Father. And now, Cad, this is very important. It's going to come out all through the book. With the Father and tagged right after God is in his son, Jesus Christ. You cannot have one without the other. If you want God, you've got to have Jesus. 
You cannot be in a relationship with God the Father without being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He keeps them mirrored together, and all through the book, you're going to see this run through. This theme of fellowship carries its way all through the book. And then the final thing that he says there in verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. There is nothing, nothing. I mean, I cannot put words to it what it's like, and some of you have experienced this, to seeing a person come to know Jesus Christ and grow in that understanding of who he is. Nothing like it. I've shared with you stories in my own life where I've seen that happen. I think of one. I don't think I've ever shared with this one. I've tried to think yesterday of ones I haven't shared. Never forget, there's a young man, 14 years old, just about 15. He went on a snow camp with us in a youth ministry that I served in. And he heads up in a snow camp. And on the, it was a, roughly a six-hour bus ride, eight-hour bus ride up to this camp. And on the, on the way up, we sit and we talk with him. And I'd be sharing with him the verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, and he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I never forget, this young man looks back at me and he says, you know, I've always wondered, what are those math ratios all about? Math ratios. This is a truly unchurched young person. He saw the John 3, colon 16. He thought it was some kind of math ratio. Makes sense to me. I mean, if you don't know anything about the Bible, hey, it looks good. So I explained to him that John 3, 16, it's John 3, colon, is chapter and verse. So we kind of talked about that. In the coming weeks that progressed, this young man made his profession of faith in Jesus Christ. I, went, I just celebrated. One of the things we did in that ministry is every time someone did that, we stopped everything, we put it on hold, and we had a gigantic birthday party. We brought in a birthday cake and we sang happy birthday because it was their spiritual birthday. They're now adopted and brought into the family of God because they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And it juices you. But more than that, it's not just enough to see them make this profession, but to watch them grow. Oh, to watch this young man deal with some of the stuff in a horrendous, devastated home that he came from. To sit with him, I sat with, he's one of the guys I sat with almost every week. We went to McDonald's in Lewistown and we'd sit down together and share an unhealthy meal and talk about Jesus. <laughs> Nothing like it. But to watch this young guy grow and then declare, you know what, I want to be in Christian full-time vocational service and then step out and head to Liberty University to get his schooling and training where he is today to say, I want to be a person who is committed to the spreading of the gospel vocationally. That's what John is saying. There is no greater joy in all the world. He says, I want my joy to be complete. So I'm writing this book so that you get it and that you plug into who Jesus is and you grow deep. And that excites John. It should excite all of us. It's something that should drive us. And with that comes this theme. I think that John introduces through the whole book, God and people. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself, the great commandment. John runs this great commandment all through the book. This is why this is my favorite book of the Bible, because that is my favorite. I love, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love people. If you love God, you're naturally going to love people. And this theme runs straight through the book till we get to chapter four at its highest point where he says, it is impossible to say you love people if you don't love God. And vice versa. And he nails it and hits it between us. So again, this theme of, so what he does here in these first four verses, he really kind of introduces his heart for the book and his readers. And he says, here we go. Now, verses five to seven is where we're going to get the first real test, so to speak, of 
He's going to dig deep and he's going to probe and he's going to go at some stuff here um, and kind of take this apart. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. So here it comes. I want you to know this message very, very clearly. First thing, God is light. Okay? God exists and he is good. He is holy. It goes on to say, in him there is no darkness at all. So here's the cool thing. God is holy. But if you look at this verse, God is not just described with the absence of evil. He's described as the presence of good. He's described with the absence of darkness, but also the presence of light. Holiness and being holy and righteous is not just the absence of dark. It's also the presence of good. And God is a good God who desires life. He's moving in your direction. He is gentle. He is kind. He is compassionate. And you go on through the list of the scriptures that God is, but he's also void of evil and sin. So it's clear, clear description. John wants his writers to know God is and God is light. Now, verse 6 is going to get very personal. If we claim to have fellowship, here it is again. So we claim to be a Christian. If we claim to be close with God, if we claim to have something in common is what the word means with him, yet we walk in the darkness. Look at what it says. What's the next phrase say? You're a liar. And the truth is not in you. So he says, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you claim to have something in common, you claim to be a Christian, but yet you walk in darkness. It says you lie and the truth is not in you. Sobering, sobering words to think about. Now, verse 7 tags on to this. This, is, this verse 7 is beautiful. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with who? One another. This, this, you say, no, wait a minute. What's so cool about that? Here's what's cool. Follow the train of thought. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. But if we walk in the light, which he is in the light, wouldn't you think the natural conclusion of that thought is, well, then we have fellowship with God. But he doesn't go there. Who does he say you have fellowship with? One another. He doesn't complete the circle with God. He completes it with us. If you have fellowship with God, if you're a Christian and you're a Christ follower and you're plugged into Jesus Christ, the natural thing to happen is to be connected with other people who are plugged in with Jesus Christ. It is natural. It is normal. And if it is not present, you've got to probe and ask, what's going on in my life? I want to look in depth here at verse 7. Kind of really take verse 7 apart. I want to put a little diagram up on the um, screen. It's kind of cheesy. This is, comes from marriage counseling. Those of you may have seen this. Some of you have gone through pre-marriage counseling. This is a classic illustration. Matter of fact, I think one of the first times this was shared with me was in pre-marriage counseling. When we went with our pre-marriage counselor, the pre-marriage counselor said to Tanya and I, said, you know what, guys? We both have a kind of a leader personality edge to us. We're both a little more dominant, though I'm much more so than what Tanya is. But we both have this kind of strong-willed, um, go-at-life-with-all-that-we-have kind of attitude. Our marriage counselor looks at us and says, well, I'll tell you what, guys, the minute either of you steps out of sync with the spirit, you're in big trouble. <laughs> That's what this, and he draw the, they draw this diagram and show that there's you in one corner 
There is others on the other and God at the top. And the closer I get with God, the closer I should be getting with others who are equally moving in that direction. It's a natural connection. So as I am walking and and walking in the light is the phrase that John uses. And I have fellowship with God and I'm plugged in with Jesus Christ and I'm pursuing that relationship. And if Tanya is doing the same thing, the natural response is then to as, as we both continue to move, we're both pulling closer together. It's a surefire way to keep strong relationships. Now, but here's what it means on the flip side. Here's what it means on the flip side. My relationship with other people reflects my relationship with God. I hear people say to me, I'm so in love with Jesus, but yet they can't get along with other Christians. I hear people say to me, I am so in love with Jesus, but yet they've got something that exists between them and someone else who knows Jesus and they could care less about taking care of it. How it is going with other Christians in your life is how John draws this parallel. How it is going with other Christians in your life is a great reflection of how it's going with you and God. Now, this was a big deal to me when I first, this first opened up because I am not naturally a people person. I drive and my energy from getting alone and getting away. The ideal Saturday to me is no one talk to me, no one interact with me. Let me go sit on a mountaintop somewhere with my Bible and a pen and a journal and just leave me alone. That's who I am to the very core. I'll never forget a mentor in my life who came along and he says, Adam, you can love God all you want, but if you're not fleshing it out with others, you don't really love God. And when I started probing this and looking at this, and that's why he would say to me, this mentor would say fellowship and connection with other people is the most important thing in the church today because it reveals how connected I am with others is going to reveal how connected I am with God. So I've been driven to study this book. This is why this is one of my favorite books in all of the New Testament because of this thought and this concept. Fellowship with God is going to reflect itself in how I relate with other people. Some practical implications on that. It should cause me great, great concern when I'm out of fellowship with other Christians. It should cause me great concern. My wife and I have had someone in our life that um, has hurt us deeply. And we have gone to this person repeatedly and asked to, to make amends, to, to try and rectify and restore and, and get this relationship fixed. This person repeatedly has said, no, thanks. That person that repeatedly says, no, thanks. It's a scary place for that person to be. If you, if, if I, and I, at times in my life, Tanya has shared with me, Hey, Adam, you've got this relationship here that doesn't seem to be going good. You really ought to move in that direction and take care of it. If I sit there and say, you know what? I don't really care to take care of it. And this person is a Christian. What's got to be called into question is, Adam, where are you at with God? Where are you at with Jesus Christ? When there are other solid, mature believers who we break fellowship over an issue, if I do not have any desire or even want to move in that direction, I've got to step back and ask, am I really connected and plugged in with who God is? Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And it doesn't mean you're going to have success because here's the big thing I want to stress. Forgiveness, forgiveness and reconciliation are two very different things. The goal is desire. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says it this way. Live at peace with all men so as it is up 
to you and in your control. So that person that Tanya and I worked with, we basically asked them, we moved them, we've done everything we can to move in their direction. Now, we've forgiven them in our heart. We have done what's necessary to move in that direction, but they do not reciprocate and they have not done things to move back in this direction. So at that point, we've forgiven, but the relationship is not restored. So just because the, the, the heart of it is desire. When you have a broken relationship, the heart is desire. Do I desire to fix this? Am I doing what I can to get the help that I need to move in that direction? Now, the second thing implication of this is when a mature Christian, a group of mature Christians disprove of my life choices and I ignore or fight with them, I've got reason to be concerned. One of my most painful things to deal with is church discipline. I hate it. I hate having to go sit down with someone who is in known sin and not getting the help they need. I hate it. Typically, almost always what I see when I sit with people like that, here's what you see. They're not listening to the people around them. They're ignoring the counsel that they've been given. And they pull into isolation away from people. When I am in that position, sin loves to hide. Sin hates other people. I don't want to bring it out in the light where others are going to see it. Sin pulls back. And when I'm in a position, when I've got a group of Christians that I trust, that are in my life, are constantly... And so if I sit with the elders, and the elders all say to me, Adam, we are concerned about blank. And it's a unified voice. For me to walk out of there thumbing my nose at them puts me in a position where I've really got to question my relationship with God. And step back and say, Adam, what's really going on here? So that's another implication. Another implication would be this. Have you ever heard of it said of someone, oh, that's just Adam. That's just John. You got to know him. In reference to a person who's grumpy and nasty, cold, never smiles, is never warm, is always distant, is always. Now, again, I'm not talking. Yeah, I have moments I've already confessed. I like to be away from people at times. There's times where Tanya will tell me, hey, sweetie, you're checked out right now. or You seem a little grumpy. Or you're coming off a little edgy. I'm not talking about we don't struggle with this stuff. I'm talking about the people where it characteristically marks their life. They call themselves a Christian, but did they walk around with an eternal frown on their face? People like that always want to step back and say, do you really know Jesus? Because this verse, verse 7, would say you might not be in a real strong relationship with him. You may be a Christian, but there may be a disconnect here you need to address. It also means I cannot live life alone. You mean, look at the New Testament. The New Testament never entertains the thought of me doing life without you, the church. You never in the New Testament find a Christian who does life alone, ever. Matter of fact, oftentimes when you see the word referring to Christians, you either see the one another phrases or you see the word referring to the group in a plural sense. You never see a, a Christian referred to very seldom in the New Testament as a singular entity. It's always the group. It troubles me when I hear people say, and I've even used this at times, you know what? I can worship God just as good out in my tree stand as I can here in church on Sunday morning. I don't need the church. No, no doubt you can worship God in your tree stand. I can't. I don't like hunting. I get cold and I want to get out of there. But no doubt there's some of you who I talk to who are in deep moments of worship and reflection of who God is. But it does not substitute this body and the need for one another. 
The Bible does not entertain the Lone Ranger Christian. And when I am strong with God, I'm strong with others. And that is what God has designed. And I need people to be strong with God. Think about it this way. Think about the fruits of the Spirit. Some of you can quote them. Love, joy, patience, peace, long-suffering, and on the list goes. How many of them can you do by yourself? You can't. How do I know I'm patient if I never interact with people? If I never live with my wife and have the four kids that I do, how do I know that I'm patient? <laughs> how do I know I have long suffering? How do I know I love? How do I, how do I know any of that if I never interact with people? The Christian life is about walking together with people. This is why life groups are so important. This is why it's so crucial, not just to gather here in a big group, but to get together with a consistent group of people that know you, can challenge you, can encourage you, can motivate you, because how we do life together reflects how I'm doing life this way. It's a crucial, crucial thought here in verse 7. And here's the cool reality. Who in this room doesn't desire strong relationships? It's the number one thing I hear from today's generation. They're hungry for relationships. I think that's why Facebook is so popular because Facebook gives you a taste of it. It's not the same thing as having face-to-face, but I love Facebook because it, it nurtures relationships, not in the way that some of us have known to nurture them in the past. But this culture today, and I think the generations ahead of us, hunger for deep, intimate relationships. This verse, verse 7, I think gives us the heart of it. You live passionately with Jesus Christ, which gives you connection to God the Father. And as you do that, you're going to find other people that are doing the same thing to come together with and live life well. It's a clear, beautiful formula um, for doing life well. Flip with me as we end to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, continue if you're in 1 John back towards the beginning of your Bible. You're eventually going to hit the book of Ephesians. Philippians and Colossians are there close by. So if you find one of them, you're close to it. Here's what I love about John. (laughs) One of the reasons I love 1 John is because John is very black and white. John can say in one sentence or two what it takes the Apostle Paul Four, five, six, seven verses. I like John just gets to the point. I'm a guy that likes to just get to the point. Say it like it is. But here is a verse in Ephesians chapter 4. The writer Paul says something very similar. And I think he ends with the heart behind what what John said in 1 John. Start with verse, actually we're going to start at verse 24. He says, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you. So he talks about being a new person in Jesus Christ. Get rid of the old. You're now new. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. So don't lie anymore. You're now a new creature in Jesus Christ. So now tell the truth. He continues, for we are all members of one body. This body image, this togetherness is brought up here. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Here it comes again. The same thought in verse from verse seven of first John in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Again, a classic marriage verse, but it's not talking about husband and wives. It's talking about us. Don't, if you got anger, if someone has wronged you and hurt you, I've got people in my life right now that I'm angry at. 
In that anger, do not sin, and you need to deal with it. Don't let the sun set while you are angry. Don't let stages of life life move on while you're still angry. Deal with it, because if you don't, it's a surefire way to undermine your relationship with Jesus because it gives the devil a foothold in your life. You keep reading. Verse, um, sorry, verse 27. And... 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. So if, if you're struggling with finances, stop stealing. But instead go, and he says, if you're, if you're a person who's struggling to have and you're, you're going out and taking it for yourself, stop stealing. Instead, work. Do something useful with your hands. And then he says that, that he may have something to share with those in need. So don't only take, now learn to give back. It's this whole old, now new. Now verse 29 shifts into this thought. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful to building others up according to the needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. This is all relational language. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Now catch verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Look what it says. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That's the heart behind verse 7. Jesus tells a story of a guy who comes along. To his, he's in debt. He's in debt, let's say, let's say it's a million dollars. Put it in today's currency. He's in debt a million dollars. The creditors are squeezing in and they're saying, listen, dude, you don't pay up, you're going to jail. Get the money now. And so he's panicked. He doesn't know what to do. So he goes to the guy who he, he goes to the bank and he says, listen, I know I owe you this million dollars, but I just don't know what to do. The creditors are coming in on me. So the bank looks back and says to him, you know what? I'm going to forgive you your debt. I'm going to forgive it. Now, this guy's ecstatic. He throws a party. He gets excited. He, I'm sure he runs out of the bank screaming and hollering and skipping and jumping. The first person he runs into outside of the bank is someone who owes him money. Now, the individual that owes him money only owed him $1,000. Guess what he does? He says to the guy, you owe me that money. Give it to me now. The guy says, I don't have the money. I don't have $1,000. He says, well, then you're going to jail until you can pay up. And he has him arrested. The word gets back to the, to the bank that forgave him his million dollars, and they call him back in and say, I have a question for you. We just forgave you a debt of a million bucks. But yeah, you walk out here and find someone who owes you a thousand, and you treat him like you requested for us not to. He says it doesn't add up. Jesus goes on to say they lock him up and throw him out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think the thought behind Ephesians 4, the thought behind 1 John chapter 7 is we have all, every single one of us, sinned. Chapter 5 says God is light. In him is, is, there is no darkness at all. Every single one of us, that cannot be said for a, one of us in this room. We all struggle to some capacity with some level of some kind of sin. All of us. He says God is light. In him is no sin. But God in his love and his compassion, knew that we could not cross this gap, moved in our direction and offered us the forgiveness that we could not work out on our own, which is what we're going to see in verses 8 and 9 as we continue with First John in the coming weeks. He says, I'm offering you this forgiveness. The natural response is for me to turn around and extend it to others. Realizing that, guess what? If I wrong Tom, 
We live in a relationship, Tom and I. There's going to be times when Tom wrongs me, I wrong Tom. The goal is to extend grace and forgiveness as Jesus has offered it to me. That doesn't mean the relationship's restored, but it's the start of the restoration process of living out the gospel that I have embraced myself. So if I'm not extending forgiveness to others, the question must be asked back to me. Did Jesus ask it back when he tells the story? Have you yourself been forgiven? Do you understand what it really means to live dynamically with a grace, faith-based relationship with Jesus Christ, having lavished his love on you? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the truths in it. I thank you for a book like 1 John. God, as we start out talking about what is a Christian, it's a word I think that our culture so misunderstands. We throw it around loose and fast. But God, when we really step back and look at the the miracle of life that we have in Jesus Christ, what it really means to come into fellowship and union with you, our Heavenly Father. God, would you challenge us as we study this book to to step back and, and not be afraid to ask the questions of our own lives. God, you write this so that we can have assurance and rock solid assurance that I am walking with you and that I can be certain that when I pass from this life, I will be with you for all of eternity. God, your desire is for us to know that, to feel that, and to live from that place confidently and boldly. God, if there are those here this morning who question, who doubt, who wonder. God, would they seek me out or an elder and, and, or someone sitting around them or that they came with and get that question answered this morning? God, others here, God, as we examine relationships this morning, the God, the Christian life is meant to be lived together with other like-minded people that love you. God, no doubt, every single person here can think at some point doesn't take them long to that person to pop into their mind that they struggle with on a daily basis. Someone maybe that they have to go have lunch with this afternoon. Maybe they're going to see them tomorrow at work. Maybe they live with them in their own house. Someone else who professes to be a Christian. God, may you challenge us to put on our front burner our relationships. And when they go bad, may we not be comfortable and sit on our hands and ignore it. But may we be challenged and may we constantly have a desire to move in that direction towards forgiveness and restoration. God, the scriptures don't promise us success. They don't guarantee the relationship to be restored. They simply ask us to have a heart for people and to move in their direction. To do everything within our power, as Romans chapter 12 says, to live at peace with others. To extend the same grace to them that you've extended to us. May we never forget. May we always live with the understanding of your radical love that is so deeply forgiven each one of us and has offered us that grace to walk into your family. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.